People said, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God is good. Guys, okay, let's get the clap thing down. If we're going to do it, let's do it, okay? And all God's people said, amen. Praise the Lord. Come on. All right. We'll get past it. We got to work on it, but it's good. Okay, I'm ready to preach, buddy. Ready to preach after that. Because we do know how the story ends, amen? And why is that true? Why? We're not just saying that. We're not crazy. It's true because we serve a sovereign God who works everything. Ugh, I'm going to knock stuff down this morning and everything else. Who works everything according to the counsel of his will. He said that he was going to send a redeemer, prophesied thousands of years before it happened. It came and he did it just like he said it was going to happen. He fulfilled all his promises. There are more promises yet to come and they're going to happen just like he said It was going to happen because he fulfilled all the other promises. And they came true. We know how it ends. Because God is sovereign over men who with their little vapor of their lives think that they're in control. But brother, sister, they're not. And we're not. He's in control. Okay, we got so much to talk about this morning. Let me pray. Then you can sit down. We'll get into Romans 9. Father, thanks for today. Um... Mm. What a beautiful story. The story that we know how it ends. What a beautiful story you've called us into. What an amazing story that you've called us into. And Father, I pray, I pray for anybody here this morning that, that's not, like they're lost. They, they don't know that they're part of a story. They don't know how this is all going to end. They don't even know what, what we're exactly talking about, Father, this morning. Would you please, through the proclamation of your word, would you please let them hear your voice and call them into this story. Call them to yourself. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. I just love you so much. Thanks for today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Romans chapter 9. Um, we got a lot to talk about, and we're taking communion today. I'm going to try to land this sermon on prayer and fasting. Um, it actually, it's not going to hopefully be, it might seem like it's going to be a hard left, but that's where we're going. And again, I'm going to talk more about this 21 days of prayer and fasting that we are calling us to as a church in this season, but uh, then we're going to take communion. So we got a lot to do, so let me jump in and read here. Romans uh, chapter 9. Um, Mainly verse 17, I'm actually going to start back in 15, which we looked at 15 and 16 last week, but let me start there and catch us us up. Verse 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us right now. Open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. Fill me with your spirit. Give me words to speak in the moment that I need it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If all of the Bible is given to us um, as a telescope so that we can see God. I think Romans 9, I would argue many places, not just Romans 9, but Romans 9 especially, might be compared to 
a little label on the right end of the telescope that says, look here, so that we don't look through the wrong end of the telescope. I think that many of us, when we come to the Bible, it's kind of what we do. We, we look at it through the wrong end of the telescope. Um, if you can roll with that analogy with me. Um, we look at it, and while it might bring some things into focus, it actually, in some ways, makes them seem distant. And the wrong, ends, the wrong end of the telescope through which we look and through which we read the scriptures is the man-centered end. The, the end of the telescope that thinks that it's all about us. Now, we, we don't say that, but we think that our will is ultimate. We think that our decisions are ultimate. We think that the creating of our own destiny is in our hands. But it's just not. And Romans 9 turns the telescope around. And it invites us, and as we work through it slowly, verse by verse, and by I mean slowly, we could go much slower than this, um, it, it causes us to not only bring our glorious God into focus, although there's still things we don't understand, but not just to bring into focus, but to not remain distant, but to come right up on us and overwhelm us with his glory and with his power and, and, with, his, and with his might. Uh, and so that's not just for this morning. I think that's what most of this section is, but this morning especially. Um, I, and there's, there's some, as we've seen, there's some heavy things in there. You know, every week I usually say, hey, good to see you guys. You know, I, I don't know that I've said that yet this morning, but good to see you guys. Um, but this morning I really mean it because I wasn't sure who was going to come back after last week. Verses like, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Uh, but let's continue to allow the word of God to press on us and to mold us and to shape us and not think that we can shape it. Let's look through the right end of the telescope. Romans 9 is like eating an elephant, okay? And so I do these little outlines at the beginning, not because I really need you to remember them, but really even almost more so for my own help that these little outlines are just a, almost like a spoon <laughs> to allow us to try to eat it one step at a, or one, one bite at a time. Uh, but this morning, what we're going to work through kind of in this order through the text is kind of the way it's laid out, or kind of these, these different movements. You've got the people, the pot or the pot, the proposition, and the point. And I've alliterated that for your listening pleasure. You're welcome. The people, the pot or the pot, the proposition, and the point. So first of all here, the people. Paul has been speaking about different people as he's worked his way through this chapter. Um, he starts in answering the question of has God's word failed by speaking of Abraham and then his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He then moves on to Jacob and Esau. He has now moved on to Moses and Pharaoh. We talked about Moses last week and what he says to him, that I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. And now this week, though, he brings in, he brings in Pharaoh, or at least that's where we're at this week. But Moses and Pharaoh are, are meant to be kind of viewed together. Both of these men are from the book of Exodus. Obviously, their lives were interwoven. Uh, Moses is the one that went in to deliver the, God's people, the Israelites, from, from bondage in Egypt, uh, where Pharaoh was, was the ruler and, and was the king. And what we're going to see here is that not only is God free to show mercy and compassion to whomever he chooses, that it is his prerogative to do so, but he is also free to bring judgment and hardening and condemnation upon anyone he pleases. Okay? And so here's how he picks up in verse 17. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. This was God speaking to Moses, through, to Moses, to Pharaoh. This is a quote from Exodus uh, chapter 9. It says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. What is God's will in raising Pharaoh up? The way that he has, it is to display his power 
It's about him. That I might show you my my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, he wants to show his power and he wants to show his name or proclaim his name. Now, his name, this is a deep, deep well we could go down into and we don't have a ton of time, but here's what you need to understand. That God's name is synonymous with his glory. Okay, his name is who he is. It's Yahweh. Now, we looked at this last week in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses asks to see God's glory, and God's like, well, no, you can't see me, you'll die. But he says to him in displaying like a little bit of his glory, like where he just was is how it literally reads. He's like, ah, you can't see me, but I'll show you where I just was. And, you know, that's enough to make Moses' face shine. And in Exodus 33, 19, he says, and we read this last week, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. So there you see it again. He said it to Pharaoh, I'm going to proclaim my name. He says to Moses, I'm going to proclaim my name. Then in Exodus again, 33, he's, I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious, will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And he says something similar to Pharaoh, okay? So these, these, two, these two men. And then Paul goes on here. Now, he doesn't speak of hardening in verse 17, but notice that this is the point that he wants us to get because he's assuming that we know the story. So verse 18, he says, So then, Paul draws this conclusion from the story of of Moses and of Pharaoh. He says, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills. Who's that referring to? Moses and the Israelites. And then it says, And he hardens whomever he wills. Who's that referring to? Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he is free to do so. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills because he is going to display who he is. Now, folks, it does not get any heavier, any more ultimate in terms of ultimate reality, things that could be more important than what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the very nature and character of God. And he is who he is. He's perfect. He does not need to apologize for anything. He never will change because he's never had to. Not just because no one can make him change, but because he is perfect in all of his radiant splendor. The very essence and nature of who he is. And part of who he is, by nature, Always existed. Again, can't, our minds can't handle this, but part of who he is is that he hates sin. He hates it. It is evil. It is rebellion. God is not, please hear me, because we're going to talk about God's wrath and very heavy things. Brothers and sisters, God is not grumpy. He is not a grumpy old man. He is not cantankerous. He's not crusty. He is holy. And in his holiness and in his righteousness, he hates sin. And so because that's part of who he is and his glory speaks to who he is, he has the right to display who he is by showing his wrath against sin. And this is what he chooses to do. And again, the context, he chose to do it against Pharaoh. Just one example. Just one example. But he also chooses to show it against anyone who rejects the offer of his son. So again, just notice the flow of thought here. He's going to proclaim his name. He's going to do it through compassion. He's also going to do it through hardening people's hearts, right, rightly so. So throughout the book of Exodus, just very quickly, if you guys like, know the story, there's a ton there, okay? Um, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened again and again and again. And, I, and somebody can fact check me on this. It, again, it depends how you, kind of how you count them. But 17 times in the book of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. It refers to his heart being hard. Ten times, ten out of those 17 times, it says that God hardened his heart. God is the active agent. Um, Six of those times, 
it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, that Pharaoh is the active agent in hardening it. And then one of those times, it just simply says Pharaoh's heart was hard and doesn't necessarily say. But the point is here, and that Paul wants us to see, is that God is an active agent in hardening his heart. Now, immediately, and this is exactly where we're going to go, and we'll get into the flow of thought and see this is exactly what Paul anticipates, is the argument that's probably rising in most of our minds right now. And that is, how is that fair? Like I said last week, and I know this is a repeat, but brother, sister, you got to remember, you don't want fair. (laughs) Fair has nothing to do with it. If God were simply fair, he would send every one of us to an eternity in hell. But he wants to display all of who he is. And when he hardens Pharaoh's heart, he is righteous and just in doing so. It is a right and just, holy judgment to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh, just like all of us, was a wicked man. In the book of Exodus, and again, I don't have time to go into all this, but you remember the ten plagues? Very quickly, he turns the Nile to blood, and then you got the frogs, the gnats, the flies, he kills the livestock, boils on the skin, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. Now, so, so like all of Exodus, like there's a lot of things that God is communicating about himself, But what we can see is he's sovereign over the Nile River. He's sovereign over the frogs. He's sovereign over the gnats. He's sovereign over the flies. He's sovereign over your skin cells and boils that appear. He's sovereign over the weather, over the locusts, over the darkness, over death. And he is sovereign over the hearts of kings. He is sovereign over the heart of Pharaoh. Proverbs, and you're like, Eric, you're just kind of making that up. You're implying that. Listen to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart... And when speaking of the heart, speaking of his desire, his will, what he wants, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. This is not an isolated incident. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, which I, I might read a little bit later if we have time. You see this over the sons of Eli, who were wicked men. And it says that in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says that they did not listen to the voice of their father, Eli, who was trying to correct them, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God hardened their heart to not listen to the voice of their father because it was his will to put them to death, and it was righteous and holy in his judgments in doing so. He has the right to do this. You see this throughout the scriptures. Saul disobeys. I'll give you another verse to really mess with you. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. God has the right to do that. His judgments are right and true. He is sovereign over absolutely everything. And what Paul wants to communicate here. Again, please do not miss this Christian because we, we subconsciously and I think consciously when we stop and work through it, work through in our minds all this reason, all these reasons why if we've received mercy and are saved, yeah, but that, this isn't true of us. So what I mean is, yeah, but I'm not as bad as Pharaoh. Right? I mean, Pharaoh was a bad dude. But that's not me, Eric. I grew up in church my whole life. Grew up in Holmes County. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls that do. I mean, we just, it's, don't do it. Brother, sister, you're missing the point. What do we say last week, again, in the flow of thought, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob was not a good guy. His very name means deceiver. And yet God chose, out of the overflow of his, the compassion of who he is, to show him love. When he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, do you know what just happened right before that? The nation of Israel made a golden calf. And they were dancing around it. 
His mercy and compassion towards them had nothing to do with them. They were just as wicked as Pharaoh. And this is what I mean by looking through the wrong end of the telescope. That we we always just think, listen, all heresy, all false doctrine, always. I mean, you can put it in some different categories, but here's two categories that are always true. Every time, every single time, to varying degrees, we make man a little bit better than he is, than the Bible does, and we bring God a little bit down from where he really is. So we make man a little more holy, and we make God a little less holy. Those two things, you just picture them like a seesaw. But that's always what we do. When the Bible speaks of an infinite gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's the way the Bible, the Bible speaks of it. So, again, back to Romans 9 here. He says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up that I want to display my power in you. Paul's takeaway between the story of Moses and what he says to Moses and the story of Pharaoh and what he says to Pharaoh is he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But, but here's again, I've already kind of said this, but let me say it succinctly because I, I'm trying to be super articulate in this as much as I can. Okay, so that we're all on the same page moving forward. But number one, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is an act of sovereign righteous judgment. I've already said that. There's nothing unrighteous about this. Number two, this hardening is not done to a morally neutral person. And let me say that when it, the Bible speaks of, of God's hardening, it's, it's never speaking of doing it to any morally neutral people because there are no morally neutral people. Again, I know that it's been months, church, since we've been here, but in the reading of the letter, it would just be 10 minutes ago. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 3? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They, the use of their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is the way the Bible speaks of our condition apart from Christ. Are you with me? And the third implication being, and again, I've already kind of said this, is that any question of God's injustice is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice but mercy. Let me say that again. Any question of God's injustice, and meaning that like God is wrong somehow in doing this, any question of God's injustice is a misconceived question because it is on the basis, because the basis of which God deals with sinners is not justice but mercy. Again, brother, you don't want what you deserve. You don't want fair. What you want is mercy. Unmerited favor. Unmerited grace. This is what Paul is saying here. Now, he goes on to verse 19, and again, I've already touched on this, but you'll see it here again in the text. He does this throughout the book of Romans. He anticipates the arguments to the propositions that he's setting forward. And he's just saying, his proposition was, I... I have mercy on whomever I will, or God has mercy on whomever he wills, hardens whomever he wills, and then the obvious response from sinful man, verse 19, would be, well, why, why, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is very similar to the question that was raised that we looked at last week in verse 14 that I've already spoken of. Again, look back at verse 14. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Again, this takes it forward a little bit, but the person say, well, if, if God is sovereign, then you know, don't blame me. And here's the thing, in talking about God's absolute sovereignty over absolutely everything, including the salvation of sinful people, this question always comes up. So again, I, I know Romans 9 is hard, but this could not be more practical and helpful. 
Because this is always a question that comes up. Well, what? I mean, what, what are you blaming me for? I mean, if God's sovereign, like what? Well, Paul's going to answer that in two ways. Okay? He's going to answer that in two ways. The first response is going to adjust our attitude. And the second response is going to adjust our theology. All right? And so here's where we have now the potter and the pot. And we will take them together. Here's how he begins to respond to that objection. Verse 20, (laughs) pretty straightforward. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So here's what Paul does, and this, again, this first response, it's he's not going to leave it here, there's more. There's a logical, theological, biblical response, but the first one, like I said, is to adjust our attitude. Remember who you are. And the way Paul frames it is, and this is the primary context that we, that we forget about all the time, is Jesus our Savior? Is he our friend? Is he our shepherd? Is he a friend that sticks closer than a brother? Is he our helper? Yes, he is also the sovereign creator. And you don't get to pick and choose which ones you like and which ones you don't. And this is the part that we forget, and so Paul reminds us of it. He says, who, who are you, a man, to talk back to God? You're like a clay pot. Not even a clay pot. I mean, middle of verse 21. You're, you're like a lump of clay. And not just a lump of clay, a sinful lump of clay. Now, again, we might object to that, but not when you think through the lens of the Bible. Even before sin, how did, how did God create Adam and Eve? Do you remember how he created Adam? took him from the dust of the ground and all the other things he spoke into existence but there was a special intimacy to his creation with Adam he took him from the dust of the ground says he molded him he shaped him and he breathed into him his spirit very breath of life the privilege of that creation being the crown jewel of all creation that Adam had he gave up when incited by the devil he believed the devil's lie and believed the devil's word False word, the lie, rather than believing God's word. Which is that you may eat from any tree in the garden, just not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you do, you shall surely die. He didn't believe that. And so not only was he created, in a sense, from the very dust as a lump of clay, but then that lump of clay, although precious to God, now rebelled. You've heard me say this before, and I don't know who said this originally. It's not original with me, but, but brother, sister, until you begin to view your sin as not just a mistake or not just a mess up, but instead, as the Bible speaks of it, like cosmic treason, you'll never understand grace fully. Because our sin is an infinite offense in the face of God. And so, again, Paul works to do some attitude adjustment here. And and just think about this with me. Like, think about, again, because Paul isn't just being harsh. He's actually trying to help us, you see. What does Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? You remember? The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So in other words, in all that we think that we might know, you don't know Jack unless you understand the fear of the Lord. Unless you understand that he is the potter and we are simply lumps of clay. Again, this, this imagery here, um, probably the most famous, this isn't the only time that this metaphor is used in the Old Testament. Um, most people, probably the most famous illustration of the potter and the clay is from Jeremiah uh, chapter 18. It, it definitely seems that what Paul has in mind here is more the thought of Isaiah 
because Isaiah specifically speaks of the potter speaking, or of the, of the pot, excuse me, speaking back to the potter. So Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah the prophet says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made, should, as the clay, the thing made should say to its maker, did, he did not make me or the thing formed of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Isaiah says something similar in Isaiah 45, 9. It says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? God is free to do what he wants. All his ways are just. And little man has no right to speak back to him. Brothers and sisters, that verse is in the Bible and it's just as authoritative and just as relevant and just as necessary as John 3.16. Now, Paul sets this up first. Again, the first part of the answer is really just to kind of give us an attitude adjustment, again, that we might look through the right end of the telescope, remembering that he's the creator and we're not. But now he, gives, he gets to the, to the second part of it <coughs> here, which is the proposition. So again, the people, the pot of the pot, and the proposition. And he's going to give a very logical, biblical, theological answer to our objection that God choosing to not save everyone is unjust. Here's what he says. And he continues with this language of the potter and the pot. Verse 22. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and again, as I've already said, is that just and good of him to do that? Yes, it's because who he is. Because part of the goodness and holiness of who he is is that he hates sin. So does he have a right to display his wrath? Yes, he does. And the proposition here is what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, again, the exact things he said he was going to do through Pharaoh, but again, Pharaoh's just one illustration of it from the Bible. It's not that that's the only place. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known? And again, notice how Paul here is absolutely looking through the correct end of the telescope and how we, when we look through the wrong end, would not say what comes next. End of verse 22, he says, that he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. See, that's God-centered. That's looking through the right end of the telescope. That God has the right to do what he wants, when he wants, and we think that he's unjust for not saving anybody and the Bible says, oh no, no, every moment that God lets sinful man live is a display of his mercy. That's the way the Bible speaks. Now there's some technicalities here that I want to get into, and it's important. Well, let me continue the thought here in verse 23. And he says he's going to display his wrath those prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay? Now, again, very important here. Let me just say it again. I feel like I've already said it, but let me say it again. I'm just going to continue to qualify it the whole way through because people always just keep coming, coming, coming back to this. The image here, okay, is that everybody wants to argue and say that it's unfair and unjust and just terrible, is the image everybody kind of presents is that as if there's somebody going, save me, save me, and God goes, no. But that is not the imagery. You understand? Nowhere is that the imagery in the Bible. God is not hardening somebody's going, please save me. No, 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 no. That's why he sent his son. He came, he came to die for anyone who would receive it. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, chapter 10. All those who simply call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So that is, that is not the image. Now, there's, here, this is verse 22. If you, if you thought, uh, what is it, verse, uh, verse 13 was rough. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. 
If there's one verse maybe that people hate more than that verse, it's, it's verse 22. And especially the last part of it that says, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, again, my job every week, I, do not, I make no apologies for the word of God, and neither should you, ever. His word is given to us for a reason. We have all of it because we need all of it, and it is what molds us and shapes us. We are people submitted to the lordship of Christ, and therefore we are people submitted to the lordship of the book that he has given us. Okay? I'm not trying to make this up. I'm just trying to be clear, which is my job as, through, in shepherding through teaching. This is true. Look very carefully at the language. Okay? Verse 22. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then look at verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Please put that verse up there. Connor, do you have the verse with the ones that was underlined? Okay, very important. Okay, this is just not trying to be fancy and going into the Greek. The whole point of the Greek, though, is to just honor the word of God. It's the language it was originally written in and to show you that I'm not making this up, okay? The word for prepared... In verse 22, when it says that he has endured much, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is the word katatizo, okay? And it's, it, it's kind of the idea of ripened, is that something becomes, it, it, be, it, it becomes that. The word for prepared down in verse 23, it says in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared is pro tomazo, beforehand for glory. And it's the idea of, you can see the, the prefix pro in it, that's why I put it up there, because there's some transference between Greek and English in, in, on, on this level, is that you see the word pro, it's the idea of like being proactive, like we're gonna go do something. God, God is the active agent in preparing us for glory. And notice the subject, again, English matters, you might think this is nerdy, I'm telling you folks, this is, if you can't read the Bible correctly, then we have no hope, all right? It says he has prepared, he's actively done this, okay? He is the subject, he is acting, he is the one preparing us for glory. Back in verse 22, not only is it a different word that has more of a passive nature to it, it's the idea of just something being ripened, he is not the active agent, there is no subject. So remember English, subject, verb, object. Subject is the one doing the verb, the action, the object is the one being acted upon. In verse 23, God is the subject. He is acting upon vessels of mercy. In verse 22, there is no subject. They are just simply prepared for destruction. So one of the things that people want to press in this doctrine and through Romans 9 is that God somehow was just like actively making people for destruction that that, and that that pleased him. That is not the case. We are all born as objects of wrath, and we'll, I'll read it to you here in a little bit. You know the passage, I've quoted it a thousand times here. From Ephesians chapter 2, we are all born under his wrath because of sin, because of the fall in the garden. Again, I want to be silent where the Bible is silent, and I want to speak where the Bible speaks. But in regards to this, a, a very, I don't think it's a stretch though, very natural fill-in for what has prepared them for destruction would be, one, our sin. We're prepared for destruction by sin or by ourselves. But again, Paul in writing this is not writing this by mistake. He doesn't use a different word by accident. And he doesn't leave God out as the subject by accident. This is all inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's being nuanced in showing us, in showing us what is true and what is right and God's sovereignty in working all these things. Okay, are you still with me? That didn't make you fall asleep? It's important, guys, I know it's heavy stuff. Here's what I want to go back to. Again, what is God doing in all these things? He is working to display the utmost of his glory. I'm going to share a quote here from Jonathan Edwards. It's not just a quote, it's a, it's a several sentences, paragraph. I'm really not doing this because, oh, Jonathan Edwards, who was you know, a really smart theologian, said this. I'm saying it because I cannot articulate it. I don't think anyone can articulate it better than what Jonathan Edwards does here. And again, he's speaking of how the display of God's wrath is ultimately for the display of his glory. Listen carefully. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, it is a proper 
and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth. That every beauty should be proportionately radiant. That the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. So let me pause. I'm going to get back to the quote, but what I'm talking about, like God, by his very nature, who he is, he hates sin. Therefore, that is part of who makes him what he is, and part of his glory is that he should display that aspect of his glory. Okay, going back to the quote. Thus it is necessary, it is necessary, that God's awful majesty His authority and dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed, so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as others do, and also the glory of his goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. I hope that made sense. He's saying the exact same thing in a little bit more detail of what Paul is saying here in verses 22 and 23. So the question is this, the the layman's kind of question that just, or in common language I guess that's being asked is, why doesn't God just save everybody? If he's sovereign, why doesn't he just save everybody? Brother, sister, You may not like it, but it's good news, and the Bible answers that exact question. And the answer is, he wants to make known the riches of his glory through objects of wrath to vessels of mercy, which is everyone who is simply trusted in him. Please understand that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what he means here by vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. It's anyone who's trusted Christ. And please understand that at one time, from the moment you came into the world, You were then an object of wrath. And God in his grace saved you from that to himself. Ephesians 2, and again I said said I'd read it, I'm sure you're familiar with it. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, listen, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, vessels of wrath here in Romans 9. Well, yeah, but Eric, in Ephesians 2, it doesn't say vessels, it says children. Exactly, children's even stronger language. It's what we were. But we were saved by his grace. So he worked in our lives to bring us to himself through a thousand different means, but ultimately through the hearing of the gospel. And this leads me to the last P. That was the main proposition, is that God is displaying his glory through displaying his wrath and also his mercy. But lastly, the point And again, it's probably been clear already, but let me just drive it home here in verse 24. I'm not making this up. I don't have an ax to grind. It's not just because of a theological system that I've adapted and and read read this text through a certain lens. It's because of the word of God and the text. Look at verse 24. He says, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Here's the point, is that by far and away, the 
most popular evangelical interpretation of this passage is that it is not speaking of individual and personal salvation regarding our eternal destinies. The most popular evangelical interpretation is that it is speaking about nations and historical tasks. You bring up Romans, oh, he's just talking about nations, he's just talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and it's kind of this motion, like, ah, and, and it's just, you know, it was through, he's just talking about the calling to bring the Messiah through the line of the Jews. Brothers, it's not what he's talking about. Verse 24, again, he set all this up, he set all this, and then he says, even us, who, who, who's the us? Vessels of mercy. Even us whom he has, key word, called. That he's called. Called to what? Called to salvation. Well, who's he called? Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This is the point of the passage. Is that he's speaking of salvation. And that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, at the bottom of it all, yes, you made a decision. Yes, you raised your hand. Yes, you walked an aisle. Yes, you prayed a prayer. Yes, you responded. But underneath it all was God. Because he called you. Very quickly, let me just, and again, I don't do this to be argumentative. However, <coughs> it has been a fun week. I've gotten many text messages and phone calls and uh, asking for clarification on many of these things. And he, please hear me, I am not complaining. I love it. Because it shows me that you're engaging with the text. But I'm trying to do my best not to be argumentative, but to be clear and to show you why. Because again, I don't want you to believe something just because I say it. I want to show you that it's from the Word of God. Let me run through very briefly and show you why this is speaking of salvation. So one of the things you do is if you think you have the right interpretation, well, let's take that interpretation and let's just plug it into the context. Plug it into the context. So let's take what I am saying is the wrong interpretation and let's just say, that Paul, for example, is speaking simply, in, when he uses the word calling, that he's just simply speaking of calling nations for historical tasks and people within those nations for historical tasks. And the primary argument that people use is that, well, he's just, when he speaks of calling, he's just speaking of calling the nation of Israel to be the people through which God would bring the Messiah. You follow me? That's the primary argument that people give. And I'm saying that's not what it is. Well, let's plug it in. Back in, first of all, back in, well, okay, let me start here. In order, to, in order to interpret the Bible rightly, you take every word within the sentence, sentence within the verse, every verse within the chapter, every chapter within the book, the book within, uh, uh, the, book within the Testament, and the Testament within the Bible. Okay? First of all, all throughout the book of Romans, he's talking about salvation. Romans 1.16. It, it, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. Okay? End of Romans chapter 8. What's he talking about? Nothing, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, anything in all creation can separate us from his love. Why is that true? Because he said back in chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's still talking about salvation, and he's still talking about salvation in Romans chapter 9. You come to the beginning of Romans chapter 9. What We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Why is Paul's heart burdened? Why does he say that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? Why? Because his kinsmen, his Jews according to the flesh, the national speaking of Israel as the national people of Israel, the physical ancestors of Abraham, because they are lost. He is not burdened for them because they're not fulfilling their historic task. He's burdened for them because they are not saved. Again, you, you see the word called again down in verse 11. I talked about this last week. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, which again, what's calling to what? Calling to salvation. But again, plug the argument into verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That argument doesn't really hold much water. Again, if, if the interpretation is that, is that he's just speaking here of historical tasks and nations, the argument would be something like, God's not just because it's not right that he brought the Messiah through Israel and not through Esau. No, nobody's making that argument. 
Again, that argument breaks down when you get to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and resisting his will. Why would anyone respond like we just looked at in, in verse 20 about, or I'm sorry, verse 19? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? The argument would be, well, it's, it's not right because Esau resisted his will and didn't want to bring the Messiah through his line. It doesn't hold any water. And then again, you get to verse 24, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And if you'll just, and I'm going to try to land the plane here. I told you at the beginning, we were going to try to land the plane on the runway of prayer and fasting. Let me show you how it ties in, okay? And some just very practical things for us as a church. Go, jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 1. And again, chapter divisions aren't in the original. We'll get here in a couple weeks. But let me make this my final argument and also then transition to some practical application. Verse 10, what is Paul still burdened for? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you see? The whole way through, he's talking about salvation. Now, here's why this matters, and I, and I, don't, I'm, I don't have time to jump into Romans chapter 10. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Here, with this doctrine of God's sovereignty and his sovereignty in salvation, and the way the Bible speaks of it with foreknowledge and predestination and election, I, I personally believe, and I don't mean to be cheeky with this, but I, it, it probably comes across that way, everybody believes that God is sovereign in salvation. Everybody does. Here's how I know. I bet that you've prayed for somebody's salvation. Anybody? A loved one that's lost? Dear friend, if God isn't sovereign in salvation, then I don't know what you're praying for. Like, there's no, there's no point. But what are we praying for? We are praying that he will sovereignly override their will with irresistible grace and draw them to himself. And one of the problems with this doctrine is that, again, I, I think everybody believes that it, it's not in the doctrine itself, it's that we misapply it. And what chapter 10, I'm not going to go into all this, but what chapter 10 is going to be all about is how we are to respond to this truth of God's sovereignty. While there's mystery there, while there are things we don't understand, while we know that it's freely offered to everyone, and yet God totally chooses, it's, chapter 10 is going to tell us how we're to respond. And the very first thing that Paul says in 10.1 is, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You see? And so here's what I want to call us to as a church. If you have a bulletin, you, there should be a little insert in your bulletin, which is 21 days of prayer and fasting. And again, in God's providence, I, I think this is timely. We, um, we just felt like this was the right time to do this. It wasn't, didn't really have anything to do with the sermon uh, or the passage we were in, I should say. Um, but, we were, but as I, we thought about it, I do see God's providence in it a lot with chapter 10, verse 1 here that we respond to God's sovereignty by praying. We are calling us as a church to 21 days of prayer and fasting. Now, throughout the scriptures, are we always to be in prayer? Yes, absolutely, 100%. But throughout the scriptures, you see that we're to always be praying. Praying is like breathing for those that know Jesus. But we're also to set aside special times of prayer, and many times with those special times of prayer is also accompanied by fasting. I want to explain some practical things real quick and what exactly we're calling you to pray and, and, and fast for. First of all, I want to explain what fasting is not, and this is in this little write-up here. But please understand, fasting is not a hunger strike, okay? Fasting is not, God, I'm not going to eat till you give me what I want. That's not what it is. We are created body, soul, and spirit. And while we have physical needs, and those are really important, and we can only go so long without them, brother, sister, our spiritual needs are even greater, and so the principle, like the idea of fasting in the Bible, is that we're going to go for our physical needs, forego our physical needs as a way of saying to God, you know what, I know there's something more important than food, although food is really important to me, and I love it. But there's something more important. A man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so along with special seasons of prayer and, sp and spending extra time in prayer, I'm going to forego food, and instead, set my focus and lift my eyes to heaven from where my help truly comes from and from the manna that I truly need for today. Now, what are we praying for? We're praying for what Paul prays for. In Romans 
chapter 10. We're praying for salvation. This is first and foremost. We're praying that God would save people. You remember several weeks ago when we talked about Paul's heart at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, I shared that quote from John Knox who prayed again and again and again over his home country of Scotland. He said, God, give me Scotland or I die. I want us to pray. and I'm not trying to just hype up emotion or, or be dramatic. Brothers and sisters, I want us to pray. God, give us Holmes County or we die. There are people all around us every day who are lost. There are people that we work with. There are people, even people that we go to church with. And they don't know Jesus. You guys know the little phrase, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. We need God to save people from their sins. And the first work of his people is to ask him for this and to pray for this. And so we're going to pray for it. Secondly, along with it, and it really is second, you guys know back in uh, the spring, we announced to you that um, you know, we've been here for five years. Our lease ran out in July. We, all, we signed another three-year lease. Our time here at the theater, again, please, I, I want to be super clear because people always hear what I don't say and then they read things into it, which really isn't fair. Please don't do that. But I'll try to be as clear as I can. Our relationship with the cons here is great. They've been nothing but gracious to us. They've been great to work with, and they have actually, and they've really enjoyed having us here, and they've been super supportive and, and kind. However, our time here is coming to an end. In another three years, it will be eight years. Again, whenever you don't own your own space, it's going to come to an end eventually. That's just where it's at. Here's what we're looking out ahead for. We need a building, okay? The elders, we're open to just renting something else again. We're truly open to that. We are. However, we sense that that's probably not what's going to happen. We're asking God to give us a building that would finally be our own. Again, we'll be in the spring. We'll be 10 years that we've existed as a church. Um, we moved four times in the first four years, this being the last place, and we've been here ever since. God has been faithful. He's been gracious the whole way through. Here's what I want us to pray in regards to a building. I want us to pray that God would provide for us a building that would be functional, that would be useful, and I want to pray that he would do, I want us all to pray that he would do it in the way that would bring him the most glory. I really mean that. Like I've told you before, guys, we have an outhouse on stage. We're not picky. We're not. I don't, I mean, again, when we first moved in, I was like, every week the visitors are like, what is with the chickens? Like, what are we doing? I get it, but you know what? It, it, we just need a place to gather. But I want us to pray that God would provide a place for us and that he would do it in the way that brings him the most glory because as we looked at this morning, that's what it's all about. And is it about a building? Absolutely not. We just need a place to gather. What it's about, though, is salvation. And I want to tell you straight up, and you can pray this along with your prayer and fasting as well. Again, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but again, I, th these, are, these are ultimate things. But I want to tell you something straight up, Mercy Hill, as one of your shepherds and one of your church. If it ever comes to the place where it's not about salvation and it's not about his glory, I also pray that God would cause us not to exist. And I'm not just saying that for overstatement. Because that is what it's about. And I'm deathly serious about it. Is we want to we take, again, if I can, worship team, you come up. I got to close. But I want our little tiny vapor of a life that maybe we get 80 years, maybe 90 years, our little vapor of a life in view of all of eternity. And I want to take mine, and I want, him, I want him to take mine, and I want him to take yours, and I want him to take ours, and I want him to pour out our little vapor of a life for his glory. That's what I want. And I believe that that means we got to keep preaching the Bible. We got to keep making it about God's glory. We got to keep making it about His Son and the cross. And we got to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Because He alone is sovereign. I sure know that I'm not. And I know you're not either. And we need him to do what only he can do.
Amen? If you're helping serve communion, please come forward. And let me not just transition to this, but also kind of still wrap up the sermon. So dear friends, in, in all that we talked about this morning, you understand that even if we are what the text this morning described as vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, do you, do you understand that the reason we can receive mercy and compassion is because the punishment, the wrath that we deserved was poured out on Jesus. Do you understand that? He, he didn't just sweep our sins under the rug. He didn't just turn away. He poured out our punishment on him. And so this, this morning, as we come, if you know Christ as your Savior, please, I, I pray that we could come with deep thankfulness and fresh revelation from God's Word about the cross and all that He took for us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't know where you'd spend eternity, brother, sister, please, please hear me. I plead with you. I'm sure there are things that I said this morning that may have been hard to understand, but I, I truly, I, I truly plead with you. Right now where you sit, please place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He, he came for you. He came to take the punishment that you deserved. And if you will just acknowledge that you deserve punishment, but that Jesus came to take it and that you want to trust him as your Lord and Savior, my friend, on the authority of the word of God, you will be saved. And then you can come and you can take this this morning. And it will actually mean something. Because otherwise, it's just an empty ritual. But to those of us who know Jesus, what this represents, represents everything. It represents the very bottom of our hope. And all that we trust in.